me tell you something. Lou could play the classics like uh, nobody's business. But when it come to getting jazz, he was a lost boy. One of the unique selling points of this podcast is that you frequently, you get me to watch movies and often they're movies that I have never heard of and know nothing about. Mm. And I knew zip about the movie called The Majestic, although I sensed that The Majestic would be some kind of institution. I thought it might be a diner before I went in. Did your heart sink when the name Jim Carrey came up on the opening titles? I don't think, were there opening titles? I think it goes straight in on a shot of his face, I think. Well, it's, yeah, actually, no, it doesn't, does it? It starts off with a black screen with um, lots of very famous directors um, doing cameos, talking about a script and how to make it better. Yes, but that, all, that's, all that, that rapidly fades into uh, a close-up of Carrie's face, and we're in a script meeting hmm. uh, and I didn't re- in Hollywood, and I got immediately that he'd be the writer and that they'd all be talking about the script. And they're, they're, they're coming up with all these ideas for... Uh, perhaps ruining his movie and then okay it's worth quoting this uh, instead of a disease we give the kid a dog <laughs> and they, they're doing all this stuff and then finally they say let's ask the writer and obviously Jim Carrey's writer but your question was did my heart sink when I saw this Jim Carrey I was surprised but I kept an open mind and I'm going to leap way ahead here and say I never ha- I never dreamt that Jim Carrey could be such a good and, and effective actor yeah this was the problem with the film on release is that People have an expectation of actors. Yeah. Um, or, or especially of comic stars, actors. Let's say. Yeah. Especially of stars. Um, you've actually got another Jim Carrey film in the pile of stuff to watch, uh, but I'm not telling you which one it is. <laughs> so, it's just one we'll do. What, one what you're getting at is that people were expecting a Jim Carrey movie, and this is not yes. a Jim Carrey movie. Well, it is, but it's not a comedy, and it's not a screwball, silly comedy. It's not a Jim Carrey movie in the sense that most people would expect a Jim Carrey movie. It's the kind of thing you'd expect Tom Hanks to do. That's, I was just thinking as you were saying that, like, who would you get? Because maybe it was a mistake getting Carrie because of those expectations. Who would you get instead? And Tom Hanks would have been a great choice. Which Darabont did for Green Mile. Now, was this before? Okay, so this film is directed by Frank Darabont. Uh, was this before or after the Green Mile? Uh, More importantly, this... Shawshank Redemption. Where does it sit in relation to that? I think. This is before both. Okay, no, I'll look it, it can't up. Be. No, Shawshank was ninety six or something. Let me it? look this up. This movie is nineteen ninety nine, right? Yeah. And so Frank Darabont, uh, interesting director, got some good credits, uh, and amongst those is da, 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 da. oh, interesting. Okay, so as a director, he's done. So you're correct. It was the Shawshank Redemption in ninety four. Green Mile in 99, The Majestic came out in 2001, uh, and then... Ooh. It's all gone a bit quiet. The Mist? The Majestic was very badly received. Oh, that sort of... You say it sort of killed his career, which it kind of did, I think. I don't know if it killed his career. I think it killed his enthusiasm for film. 
because I think he probably put more into this than the Green Mile and Shawshank Redemptions, which were both uh, uh, Stephen King adaptations. It's interesting that you mention that because this, this film is written, and I think quite well written, by Michael Sloan. It's a big credit. It's just about his only credit. This pretty much yeah. terminated his enthusiasm as well, apparently, or maybe his yeah. career. I, I think it's a shame. I When I watched this film, I was very surprised that because I didn't see it until about 2004, 2005. And may I ask how you came to see it? Uh, I was looking for something else with Jim Carrey in it. I like Jim Carrey. Um, I don't like everything he's done, but Ace Ventura 2, I still think, is one of the funniest films ever made. Is that the it Pet just, Detective? Yeah, but it's the second one. That's, okay. that's key. Well, it's such a stupid film that if you can't enjoy it, there's something wrong with your soul. Add it to our pile. <laughs> make you watch Ace Ventura 2. Oh, you've made me watch worse than that. You seriously have. <laughs> okay, fine, yeah. Shouldn't we do Ace Ventura 1? But you were just saying that that wasn't very good in comparison. Well, then we could compare and contrast. Now, anyway. I'm, may I say I'm gobsmacked that you like Jim Carrey? Um, like I said, I don't like everything Jim Carrey's done. I think he's very much of his time. That shtick grew thin rapidly. I mean, we're talking like two years, and then by the time he hit Batman Forever, everyone's had enough of him. Was so, he not still huge after that? Um, well, he did the Truman Show and started, much like any other comic actor, started to crave a bit more of a challenge than pulling faces. Well, that's exactly what the Majestic is, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I know that he was really pleased to get the Majestic and the reaction to the Majestic really affected his future decisions as well because everyone involved thought it was a great film and it is a great film, but it did not click with audiences at all. I think just because it's too bloody long. Yeah, it's got half an hour, way too much in there. Well, you did warn me about this uh, with a, a rider that Frank Darabont movies are all too long. Yeah. Um, I think you could actually remove the McCarthy backstory, the subplot, and actually okay. have a decent romance. May I jump in here and say that one of the first surprise is that this is a Jim Carrey movie. The second surprise is that it's a period movie because in that first hollywood script meeting because they never change i thought it was modern day in <laughs> fact i misheard something there's a line uh that mcdowell kid which i misheard as macaulay culkin so I see, which you know because they're both child actors right so yeah. I, I was thinking is, is macaulay culkin english because they're talking about that english mcdowell kid but that must have alienated you for quite a while <laughs> well uh, very rapidly we then leave the studio and go out and about in Los Angeles, the, the larger Los Angeles and it's very clearly a period movie, which I love I love the 50s period and it's very well evoked in this Yeah, it does look like one of those um, backlot towns but actually they did film in a, a, a real town. Okay, so, so before we get there, what Matt was just saying was that uh, there's a whole subplot about the McCarthy thing which is about the, the witch hunt of uh, communists, particularly in the media, like in, in Hollywood. And mm. that took place in the 50s, and that is the setting uh, and the subject, in, in some sense. And the catalyst. Movie. And, yeah. yeah, so what happens is, uh, because we see this guy, Peter Appleton, played by Jim Carrey, he's a, a screenwriter, you know, he's, he's gradually, his career is getting traction, and there's a wonderful scene at uh, Grauman's Chinese Theatre, which is a cinema in America. Theatres are cinemas. Cinemas are called theatres. And he goes there to see his own movie. Like the African Queen is showing. And he says, ah, 
uh, I came here to see the movie I wrote, not that one. And he's he's got written the second <laughs> part of the double bill, which is called Sand Pirates of the Sahara. Mm. And it's uh, the post is great. And the, the names of the actors are great. Like there's a guy called Ramon Hamon, which is Ramon Ham, right? Who's, who's the sort of uh, Latin bad guy in this. But what I was getting at is we see these sequences as he sits in the cinema with his girlfriend, who's the starlet in the film. We see the film on screen, this black and white, silly kind of Indiana Jones type adventure movie. I loved those black and white sequences. They were so well shot. There's a lot of love there. They're not perfectly shot. There's, of there's too not. much coverage for films of that age. Of course but, not, Matt. Oh, you mean it's not a perfect replica of its time? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it has a slightly too modern look. Uh, Darabont overdoes the angles. Whereas... I, but I just loved it. It was great. I know, absolutely. Well, they also had uh, people like uh, Bruce Campbell coming in to play the parts, and Bruce Campbell's very good at doing that square-jawed... Was, was he the guy with the sword? Yeah. Who does the... Does he, does he, did he really do the somersaults? No. Okay. <laughs> just checking. I don't even think he walks down the street without a stunt double. Um, yeah, no, I agree that those sequences are nice, but skipping ahead a little bit here, that girlfriend is never heard from again. And I liked her. Uh, but yeah. she, So what happens is... Uh, our, this is all to set up our, this is a classic Hollywood screenwriting thing we set up that the guy's life is going so well and of course it's all about to change he goes into the studio the very next day having been to, to see this movie which he's good credit for him with his girlfriend who's the beautiful starlet from the film everything's going real he's driving along in the sunshine in his nice convertible car and he comes to the studio to find that he's been blacklisted because of uh, a communist association way back in his past, you know, a really trivial uh, attending of a meeting. And this sort of thing did happen when mm. he was at university. You went to a meeting of a, an association called something like Bread Instead of Bullets, which is turned out to be a communist organization. And now people were hunted down and lost their careers because of things pretty much as trivial as that. So what happens is he's kind of kicked out of the studio it looks like his career is over and he gets really 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 drunk with a toy monkey at his side for reasons that we don't have to go into then he gets in his car really really drunk and even the bartender like this is the 1950s when driving drunk you know smoking in hospital wards was the done thing even his bartender says you shouldn't drive and he gets to cut a long story short he gets involved in an accident an extraordinary accident well let's talk a little bit about that accident because Instead of going home, he just drives down the Pacific Coast Highway, like just he did, doesn't know where he's going, right? And he ends up on this bridge, driving across this narrow bridge, and we know something bad's going to happen on this bridge because there's a warning sign about it being a narrow bridge. And then this gorgeous little animal, I think it must be a possum, scuttles <laughs> scuttles across the bridge, and this wins my heart forever. The Peter Appleton character hits the brakes on his car, not to run over this poor little critter, and of course he goes off and he ends up in the river below. It's a nice little character shortcut as well, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, do you have any idea what that, that critter was? Was it a possible? Not a clue. Okay. But the, the the river then washes him to sort of a coastal estuary and he end, ends up on the beach lying there battered and sort of his clothes torn and he's found by an old codger. And did take it from there, Matt. Do you think yes. the film would be better opening with him opening his eyes on that shoreline? And no. us not knowing his backstory. No. I think it would. Well, you... I think if he was then taken into town and people assumed that he was who he thought he was, but he wasn't so sure and some other people weren't Allow so sure. Allow me just to quickly jump in. The, the kind of movie this is, I when I got the measure of it, I've written that this is 
It's the return of Martin Gare with an amnesia twist. <laughs> and it's also kind of Doc Hollywood in a way, I thought. So those are the comparisons mm. I draw. Which is, you know, Hollywood smoothie <laughs> ends up discovering the joys of small town life. Yes. Well, as you say, he's found on the beach. He's found by uh, the local... He's not a doctor, is he? No, the doctor he's, turns um, up later on. This is basically... That's David Ogden Steers, yeah. Local um, codger. This is uh, James Whitmore, who has the most amazing face. He actually, I think he looks a lot like Hoggle from Labyrinth. <laughs> but listen, <laughs> he does Christian. now that you mention it, but there's a lot of good old codgers in this town, in, in, including notably Martin Landau, who we'll get to in a minute. Landau's great. I, I, I thought so. I mean, this, yeah. Um, I, I do think if he woke up on that beach, it might make for a better and more interesting film. Because but then, then, got then would more... you have, okay, I've written Martin Landau is very good. Uh, and I've written surprisingly so is Carrie. Now, if you, Jim Carrey, that is, if you opened without any of the backstory about him being a Hollywood writer, would that you then just lose that backstory entirely? No, no, I'd keep it. I'd keep that that's what happened and all that did happen. But, but I, I would yeah. have it come back to him. Later on. In a moment of clarity and how the memory returned. And then you've got that situation of shit, okay, I've been playing along with this so unwillingly. Just people don't, don't, don't know what happens. What happens is that Jim Carrey is this good Samaritan takes him into town. He's penniless because he's lost all his money in the water. And he's dishevelled and he's a you know he's a wreck and he's injured the guy takes him to the local diner and when i saw the diner in the distance i thought oh i bet the diner's called the majestic but it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> so he sits down at the diner and the guy uh, they're all lovable no no small town people are as nice as these small town people in this town yeah. and they give him a free breakfast and he's eating the free breakfast and it's interestingly it's when the doctor arrives and they take him out of the diner and they walk past the window of the diner that we see Martin Landau, who's in one of the booths in the diner, looks out and he freaks out because he sees Jim Carrey. Everybody up to this point has been saying, oh, don't we recognize you from somewhere? Yeah. And Martin Landau totally freaks out because the reason they all recognize him is that he sees his son, who he thought was dead in the war, called Luke. He thinks he's, yeah. he sees Luke. And this is a town that lost a lot of people in the war. They, make, they really make a meal of that. Do you think that that's essential to the story? I think it was true of small town America, and this is very much this film has a message. Uh, I don't know if you know, but the letter that Jim Carrey reads at the end, which is from the real Luke, yes, yeah. is an actual letter sent oh. home from someone during the war. The did, word for word. How did you know that? Because uh, I read up on the film. Wow. I was quite interested in the screenplay. It's uh, I, I like it as a film. I think it's a really good film. And actually, the letter, the voice of the letter is uh, Matt Damon. Again, I think he's uncredited. Well, I knew that. Okay, we're sort of leaping way around in, in the story. But So what happens is that Carrie has... We, we the viewer, know that, that Carrie was a screenwriter called Peter Appleton in Hollywood. Now everybody thinks that, that this guy, that he's actually Luke Trimble. Uh, and as I said, amnesia... Uh, Carrie himself doesn't know if he's Luke Trimble, but the, the audience, or at least this member of the audience, me, thought, well, maybe he is Luke Trimble. Maybe that, you know, maybe something happened to him. In fact, that, <laughs> that, that theory has floated at one point that, that he, during the war, he was wounded and he got amnesia then. And that I thought, well, maybe he's reconstructed the new life as this screenwriter, Peter Appleton. Maybe he really is going to turn out that he really is Luke Trimble. It but, was, yeah. Because then you could have had things in his scripts that, related to this that town. That would, would have been interesting, wouldn't it? And then you work, you end up then on that other plot point where you think, okay, well, maybe this is all just him unconscious having a dream and it's all, oh, you were there and you were there and you were there. Um, yeah. 
It could have gone many ways. I, like I say, it's a very good script. I just think it loses its way right at the very end. Well, it does. With... It's sort of part of the problem with this movie is it doesn't really know what kind of movie it wants to be. This is the thing, and I think that McCarthy subplot is holding it back because it's an unpleasant part of the film that doesn't really need to be there. Is Laurie it's one message too many. The name, the name of his, the, the actress who plays his girlfriend, Adele. Yes, uh, the, the, yeah. Well, the new girl, the, the lawyer uh, yeah. in the town, yeah, Luke's yeah. ex-girlfriend. Yeah, so, so there's all these people who, whose lives were um, damaged by the loss of Luke in the war, and now it seems that Luke has come back, and we, the viewers, think, well, maybe Luke has come back, which is kind of an interesting thing. Did you think that maybe Luke had come back when you first saw it? I thought there was going to be more to it than there was. Um Again, I I was working on the assumption that this was him unconscious and that he would turn this into a film. Uh, I thought after the accident, he's unconscious, then he'll wake up and think, well, okay, this will make a great film. Oh, you mean you thought the whole thing was a dream? Yeah. That would have been just, a terrible twist, wouldn't it? Well, just because this was 1999, it was three years after Sixth Sense and people were obsessed with fucking twists for 20 years. And <laughs> I, yeah, every damn film had to have a twist. So you ended up watching films thinking, oh, God, here it comes. And well, it that ruined film a for a long time. Dreadful, 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 dreadful wouldn't twist. It? Yeah. And. That was why I kept watching, because <laughs> I thought, I've got to see how this is going to end. Yeah. But when I was watching, I didn't realise it was two and a half well, hours. I thought is, it was going to be a 90-minute. I'd said that the note, small town, is remotely this nice. But you do get sucked into it and seduced, because I think that Darabont's a good director, and he's got a fine cast here. So all the locals, like uh, Catherine Dent, who plays Mabel, who's the, the woman in the diner. I knew her from The Shield. She's really great. All the, these character actors are are terrific but the main thing is uh, sorry Matt did you, did you want to jump in well I think didn't Darabont direct the shield or contribute to the shield he did. he did yeah how, so he probably brought her in how interesting yes I just noticed that amongst his credits yeah because she's really terrific in it so he did he uh, well he directed the shield in 2007 so I think it's probably the other way around that that was years after this, in other words. That's what I mean. Did he bring her into the Shield? I I'd, I'd never no. seen the Shield. I don't know. No, he he was a, she was she was a regular in the Shield from the off, and uh, Darabont just did one episode, uh, of uh, out of many many episodes. So he was just a hire director for hire on that. But it's an interesting connection still. And I she's she's very good, but everybody's very solid in this. And the other thing I wanted to say is in their depiction of this rapturous small town there never was a small town like this the cinematography is by David Tattersall and what they've done is they've deliberately gone for a Maxfield Parish colour palette like if you don't know who that is look him up he was a very popular commercial artist in the 20s and 30s and he had a there's even the thing called Maxfield Parish blue like he used for his skies and he, he would do rapturous sunsets over lakes and stuff and they've very deliberately in a number of shots, notably the one where they go to the lighthouse, uh, you think, oh, yeah, they, they're trying to conjure up the paintings of Maxfield Parish very successfully, I thought. Yeah, there's also there's that sequence where the lights come on at the Majestic, which is oh, so over the top. Oh, it's but amazing. I loved it. I've written the Majestic Neon is great. Because what it, it, what it is is that Martin Landau, who's the father of Luke, finds his son, he thinks, has come back from the dead. And they... Martin Landau used to run a cinema called the Majestic Movie Theatre, they'd say in America, and it's gone to, it's an old, beautiful old picture palace that's gone to rack and ruin. In fact, as soon as they walk through the door into the, the uh, 
the cinema auditorium and there's all this crap on the floor. I just wanted to grab a broom. Like literally, <laughs> just watching the movie, I wanted to tidy the place up. And we were talking before about doing places up. You mentioned in Calamity Jane, the way they do up the cabin. There's always yes. a certain joy in seeing people taking something that's fairly rubbish. And again, in, in uh, Age of Consent, when James Mason begins to decorate his, uh, his cabin on the tropical island, there is a certain joy in seeing a crappy place being fixed up, isn't there? And with this, it's got fantastic music over the montage. Well, I the music's by Mark Isham, and he did a very good job on this film. On this film, yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard awful soundtracks from him, and I can't oh, remember what so it was, so but nasty. I knew the name. You're nasty to everybody. He's a, he's a very... He's a leading... I just said he did a good soundtrack on this. Yeah, but you, you had to add the fact that, you know, many others... you hate. Anyway, he's a great job on this, and, and an interesting composer generally, I'd say. Which, again, oh, the music as well, bringing up... Um, there's a really good scene where... Jim Carrey. Yes. They have a big uh, coming I was home party. Sweating for him. bullets, yes. <laughs> it's so well done. Um, the, the whole crowd are there and they're welcoming him home, and he's still not entirely sure who he is, and they're all convinced he's Luke. And in the middle of this party, they have a piano up on stage. And, and his music teacher. Yes. His music teacher's on stage. <laughs> and invites him up to play the piano. Yeah, after saying what a wonderful classical pianist is, he was. Uh, she she invites him up and say, and at this point, I was thinking, oh, I felt so bad for the guy because I thought oh, he uh, probably isn't Luke. He probably can't play the piano. This is going to be so embarrassing. But what way is it going to go? And Darabont does not fuck about. He keeps that uh, almost a full minute of tension, which is a long time in a, on screen. What happens is that um, Jim Carrey, uh, Pete Acker, Luke sits down at the piano with this 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 old crone of a music teacher looming over him and he puts his hands on the keys and it's sort of like nothing kind of like just some random you know it's not even chopsticks is it he just hits a few bum notes and yeah. obviously the whole crowd is watching and everyone and it gets wants... tenser and tenser you said it went on for about a minute. It, i was just as i say i was in a muck sweat it was it was so uh, you know tense on behalf of the guy but then suddenly he just hits on a it's it's not even a jazz riff is it? it's more of a boogie woogie riff. it is and the thing is they, they do this really smart thing it's not that he can't play the piano at all and it's uh, it's not that he can play classical music they do a third thing it turns out that he's a great boogie woogie pianist <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is even better than if he played Rachmaninoff or something and it's a lovely uh, this is a very good script it's very well thought out and it's made with a lot of love by Darabont it deserved to be a, a better received film I think there's a lot of love for old films here, which you get in Darabont's work, other work as well, but in this it's a bit more full-on. And there's some nice... Uh, you've got Davy Ersted still in the middle of it, which never fails to yeah. make a nice backdrop So, so what happens is when they finally get put... Uh, renovate, refurbish and repair the Majestic... And God, I, you know, I could just watch that... We were talking the other day during Niagara how I could just watch uh, Marilyn Monroe smoke in bed for, <laughs> for about an, <laughs> half an hour. Uh, well, same with that, just that the... the gorgeous multicolored neon on the facade of the majestic i just thought it was stunning anyway once they get the cinema up and running we have a series of sequences in which films are being shown there one most notably yeah the day the earth stood still um we we talked about actors we didn't mention david dalton steers who who is he? he's the doctor in this he's, yeah. i love david dalton steers he was in mash for the last few years he was the replacement for frank he came in as uh, charles um he is a dignified presence in any film. He's always reliable, but in this, he's so good. When he has to come in and deliver the bad news about Harry, oh well, yeah. Um, so, so he's the local doctor, and he's the the father of uh, 
Adele, who's who's yes. the, the love interest in this. But we haven't really gone into her. She's a, a law student who's just passed the bar, I believe. Yeah. So I thought I thought okay, she's a law student for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that that is rather heavy handed. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's I liked it. I thought she was. It was there's an interesting difference between his two girlfriends his girlfriend in the real world so to speak back in la and his girlfriend here although it has to be said they're both blondes aren't they so perhaps they're not that different this was what was leaning into my um idea that this was all just a dream and that she was the she idealized was a, version of the girlfriend yeah, that he she had. was a variation well yeah. you know uh, i know i shouldn't say these things but i fancied the the los angeles girlfriend more than the it's very wrong of me i know than the, the than the wonderful uh courageous lawyer small town girlfriend i preferred the shallow starlet who dropped him immediately that he went on the blacklist that was you said she dropped out of the story well, that's because she, she she wouldn't have uh, taken his calls after that would she but we don't even see that well, it's a line of dialogue we don't see it it's true and I, I thought yeah. that she was a, a good enough actress uh, and uh, an interesting enough character that, that there should have been more of her, I felt. Well, I think Laurie Holden was the better of the two actresses. And Laurie Holden, unfortunately, she got stuck in uh, Walking Dead for about four or five years. So she was well, off again, the market Darabont, for a while. Well, again, isn't it? Yeah, uh, which is a shame because I, I think she could have had a decent film career. She's certainly got the look in this. That when she comes off the train and she's got the hair and the makeup and everything, she looks amazing. Well, she's got a very interesting sort of cat-like face. You know what she reminded me of? Of Teresa Russell a bit. Yeah, you're you're sounding a bit obsessed with Teresa Russell. You know, we had this uh, a couple of weeks ago where you were trying to find that film. Yeah, that was like nine years ago in a podcast about another movie. I did mention that Teresa Russell was in a movie. That was very wrong of me, though. And I, but I will just say that uh, that again, The Shield. Laurie Holden did a lot of The Shield, so Darabont. Does, oh, really? Does, 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 there does okay. seem to be a connection there. Yeah. Do you know what she's in The Mist as well? Just thinking about it. The Mist is such a terrible film, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, thank God we can agree about something. I don't like Stephen King. Like, you know, I know I tried to get no. you to watch Carrie, which I think is a terrific <coughs> movie. There, there's, there's some limited Stephen King. Joe, uh, you know, I don't like Stephen King's books, but I, whenever I hear an interview with Stephen King, I find myself oh, agreeing great. with almost everything he says. Yeah, he's no. very now he's very canny, and he looks back on his old work very critically. Mainly yeah. because he said he was drunk when he well, did most okay. of it. Okay, this is such a, a rabbit hole we mustn't go down. But I think that he talks so much good sense about writing and being a writer. It's just, it just I wish he'd written more stuff that I really loved. Uh, okay, end of rabbit hole. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's save this for when we do. I'll never get you to watch Carrie, but maybe we'll get you to watch some, something else that we can talk about that has a King connection. Back to The Majestic. So uh, the, the reason I mentioned Doc Hollywood is, is that the guy ends up against his will. Again, it's a car thing, isn't it? Car malfunction. Ends up in a small town and discovers the heartwarming richness of life there. And that's what's happening to Jim Carrey here. And he's, it's, it's, I kind of got sucked into it, especially once the cinema was up and running. And he's got this nice little life going along, but it's very cleverly done. He's showing no signs of recovering from his amnesia. Just as a sidebar here, nobody gets amnesia like that. Nobody has global amnesia <laughs> where they forget who they are. It's just a Hollywood thing. It just doesn't happen. Anyhow, he's happy in his new life. And then Sand Pirates of the Sahara gets programmed at the, his cinema, at the Majestic. And you think, oh, this isn't going to be good. And sure enough, it it's the dialogue isn't it begins to bring yeah. it back to him on the screen the characters say oh roland oh emily and he says oh shit because <laughs> <laughs> carrie says oh shit because he, he's realized and uh, he goes back to look at the poster and see his name on it. and the interesting thing and this i always felt that this movie might go in a kind of um fantasy direction uh 
you know, magical. And it sort of almost does, because at that exact moment, his father, I mean, Luke's father, Martin Landau, has a heart attack right when, at that moment of realisation, and he's not anywhere near Carrie. Like, he's upstairs in the projection booth and Carrie's down in the lobby. But the, at that instant, he has a heart attack. And unfortunately, his uh, subsequent funeral is where everything kicks off. So as they're all walking back from the funeral, that's when the uh, FBI... Yeah, so, so you, I know what you mean about that whole McCarthy subplot, because what has happened is, because our hero was blacklisted by the movie studio as a potential commie, he was then supposed to you know, turn up and be grilled by, I guess, the House Un-American Committee. Anyway, he was supposed to be uh, interrogated about this, and he just disappears. And the reason he disappears, as uh, we know, is because he crashed his car and he has amnesia. But somehow, and this is very tenuous, they've sort of worked themselves up into a, a rage about this guy disappearing back in back in Hollywood, and they've convinced themselves that he's a major uh, commie spy. Like, I just don't think that would happen. And what happens, as Matt says, after the funeral, after Martin Landau's funeral, uh, when he when Jim Carrey is walking back arm in arm with his sweetie pie, with his sweetheart, the a whole cavalcade, like, I'm not kidding, like about five black... Uh, sedans pull into town very sinister with the motorcycle cops beside it. and the FBI has come all to arrest this one you know uh, minor screenwriter who they now think <laughs> is a big time commie spy which I just kind of didn't buy no what I do like about the timing of that is that prior to them turning up he's finally had the guts to tell her that he's not who they all think she is yeah so yeah. that at least that's out of the way so that when he's arrested, it's not another thing they've got to work their way through, because I was kind of hoping it wouldn't be a question of her defending him. Which... She, she did not take it well when he tells her. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't, does she? Uh, yeah, Adele does not one. take it well. <laughs> That's what it said on the toilet wall. <laughs> but I mean, he told her as, as, soon as, you know, as soon as he knew, it's not like he, he pulled the fast one on her. And he generally thought that he might, and we, the audience, generally thought he might be Luke. And then we end up with this irritating final 30 minutes it's quite lengthy of his hearing uh during so, which again rather unbelievably he gives an impassioned speech that draws applause and yeah yeah it just wouldn't have happened so what happens I mean, you'd have been taken, arrested on the spot <laughs> he's taken back to los angeles he has to face the i think it's the house on american activities committee in this mccarthyite hearing where the idea is that he has to confess to being a communist and name other people this was always the horrible thing about the blacklisters it wasn't enough just to say that you were guilty. You were supposed to rat out other people. And that led to uh, hatred and enmity that, that continued for the rest of, you know, there were people who would not speak for the rest of their lives because some guy like Edward Dimitrik had name names and so on. And uh, uh, Francho Tome, we mentioned the other day, uh, didn't work after his hearing. Oh, well, it was bad in two ways. Anybody who stood up to these McCarthyite idiots their career was wiped out and anybody who went along with them they lost in, in, in another way they lost they lost a career in another way that they, they were people who would never work with them again yeah uh, uh, like kazan another famous example so i was grappling grappling for that name so, so, so there's a, as matt says they go back to la and there's this huge trial and it's like it's one of those big hollywood turnaround things isn't it it's, it's a redemption hollywood redemption sequence isn't it but a long one, and one that kind of it derails the film a bit. And you don't buy it. Again, I didn't entirely buy it, because as Matt says, uh, our hero emerges from it like as a hero. He, he, yeah. he, it's really a bit silly, I thought. 
Um, so a good script up to a certain point and well, should have just ended as a romantic film uh, with uh, him and Adele having to iron shit out. Well, maybe. The thing is, they had, having set it up, the fact that he's not really this Luke character and then he's taken away from the town, they needed some big event to... Because what happens at the end is he, he writes to Adele and says, I'm going to come past the, ta- the town in, in a train and if you're not standing on the <laughs> station platform, I ju- I'll just stay on the train and I won't get off. And... It was if you, anybody's familiar with the song "Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree," it was one of those because it's not just her standing on the platform; the entire town has come out to welcome him back because he did such a great speech against the uh, the, the Senate committee, basically. Well, because he used uh, Luke as a defense and Luke as a character, and saying how he wouldn't be proud of it. So that's why the town was. Well, a, Luke was a war hero, and he's saying how this war hero would, you know, he stood up for America, American values, which are being traduced and, and uh, blackened and. Uh, dragged through the dirt uh, by this committee. It's very hard. This is the day after Donald Trump's got off his second impeachment. It's very hard not to <laughs> say anything, to, you know, draw any parallels. But let's not go down that rabbit hole either. Well, it's also Valentine's Day today. So yeah. I adore the romance of that final scene on the train station. I love a bit of schmaltz. Yeah, and which surprises me. And the whole parting to reveal Adele. Well, it's, it's smarter there. than that. The whole uh, crowd parts to reveal... The doctor, the guy you realize, yes. David Ogden steers Doc Stanton, and we think that she's not there. Then he steps aside to reveal she's behind him. So it's really well, really well orchestrated. So it's worth it for that to get through all the McCarthy it's stuff. It's a very interesting movie, and another movie that I th- it, it reminded me of was um, Pleasantville, which mm. which is a is a total fantasy movie. But again, it's that thing about small town America, slightly off kilter. It's yeah, it's kind of a lovely movie and a real oddball one. It certainly deserved a way better reception than it got, I would say. I'm sure it's still to come. People well, are late to appreciate films. Well, I'm really sorry that, that poor Michael Sloan, who did a good job on the script, we can argue back and forth about whether, you know, the McCarthy thing, the Hollywood thing, but once you go down that route, he does a really good job of it because just before Jim Carrey goes back to the small town, he's what has happened is that he's emerged from this hearing improbably, not only unscathed, but in a better position than before, and He's right back in a story conference, just exactly like at the beginning where he's sitting there silent while all these people around him who are like, you know, executive producers or whatever are saying, ah, I know what we should do. Here's a what if. And they're discussing how to end his movie. And the thing is, Carrie just gets up and says, here's a what if. And he just like walks out. That's the dumbest idea I ever heard. And he walks out. But the th- my problem with that is the idea these guys came up with, I really liked it. This idea about the dog. <laughs> They're saying, oh, the miner could lose his sight instead of be, you know, like losing his leg. And then the dog could lead him up for the big speed. I thought, that's a great fucking scene. <laughs> I don't know why Carrie was so upset about it. Well, I, mean, I think that scene ended up in World Is Not Enough. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, you've lost me there. <laughs> I was just going on about bad writing. Oh, okay, yes. Uh, well, um, this... I mentioned earlier as well that they were all um, cameos in there, the uh, the people offering I didn't know advice. that. I did not know uh, it's that. Gary Marshall, Paul Mazursky, Sidney Pollack, Carl Reiner and Rob Reiner. Oh, that's so great. And the thing that Matt Damon reads the letter, because what it is is uh, the Jim Carrey character, he knows that he's not Luke, but he's get, he's been given this letter that was written by the real Luke and we hear the voiceover and of course it's not I wondered how they were going to do it whether they are going to use Carrie's voice they didn't they used somebody else's voice who turns out to be Matt Damon interesting yeah. so yeah the, a good the, film It's the whole movie is a real quality production I mentioned the gorgeous photography the music in every regard it's been beautifully crafted 
Yeah, it's just unfortunately audiences, I think, were expecting something different from Jim Carrey. Um, yeah, I never gave him a chance, it. right? Yeah. Absolutely. So. Well, yeah, but thank you for introducing it to me. I, I, I really got sucked into it. It's a nice kind of heartwarming film. Um, and I, this is the big take home, is I never thought Jim Carrey could act uh, because he's, he's, he underplays it constantly and a lot of it is just done with his face especially when he's wandering around shell-shocked when he doesn't when he first arrives in the town there's some lovely stuff you know it's a bit of a cliche but there is this thing that comedians make good actors and i, I think it's true i think that comedians are much better at uh, portraying grief and sadness <laughs> than they are at glee For if you ask reason. a comedian to play happy they go way too happy but if you ask them to play morose they they can drop oh. it like a stone oh, d- you look seriously? at robin williams richard Pryor, all of them can do it uh, Pryor didn't do much straight drama but when he does it's it's i was uh, we seriously... might have to do jojo dancer at some point I sure i was seriously impressed with carrie that was that was the big surprise from this film this has been a podcast by my friend matt west and myself andrew cartmel But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. And you know why? Chaplin, that's why. And Keaton and Lloyd. Garbo, Gable and Lombard and and Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Cagney, friggin' Ginger. They were gods.